Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. Now through Cyber Monday, Christianity Today is half price. You can enjoy meaningful Christian conversations along with deep dives into relevant topics when you get an online or print subscription to Christianity Today. You also get seasonal devotionals, including this year's Advent devotional. Visit orderct.com slash half off to start a subscription and help support programs like the Bulletin for just a few dollars a month. Visit the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash half off. I think even the metaphor that's so common in this process is a problem. It's turning children from gift into something that's instrumental. And I think that is something we have to work through when it comes to this. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Nicole Martin, and today on our show, we're talking about embryo adoption, the new opportunities to create a family and the ongoing needs of adoptees. We're also talking about the rise in international students on college campuses, who they are, and how we can love them well. Lastly, we'll talk about psychedelic churches, their appeal, their dangers, and our deep quest for spiritual belonging. Joining us today are Kara Bettis Carvalho, Cameron Lee Small, Greg Howe, and Aaron Birke. We are joined today with two guests who are going to talk with us about the challenges and opportunities of embryo adoption and the ongoing needs of adoptees. Our colleague, Cara Bettis Carvalho, is a journalist and storyteller, associate editors of Features and Opinions for Christianity Today. Cara, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. We also have Cameron Lee Small, who's the author of This Is Why I Was Adopted. He is the founder of Therapy Redeemed and holds a master's in counseling psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Great to have you, Cameron, with us today. Thanks so much, Nicole. Excited to be here. So, Kara, you just did a piece on embryo adoption, and I feel really excited to talk about this. I have a lot of friends who are in their late 30s and 40s and facing some challenges, some of them single and trying to figure out what to do, some of them older and just recognizing that our bodies don't always do what they're intended to do. So give us a little background on your piece. Sure. Thanks, Nicole. I first heard about embryo adoption a few years ago. I'd probably read an article in passing and it didn't really stick, but I had a friend who was looking into embryo adoption. They'd struggled with infertility for several years and just felt that traditional adoption, some other avenues were not where they felt like the Lord was leading them. And so they looked into embryo adoption and that was my first encounter with this different avenue of adoption in many ways. Over the last few years, I'd wanted to do an article for our audience kind of exploring embryo adoption. And when I first looked into it, I thought this would be just a more traditional piece on a different 
adoption avenue and looking into it, realizing there's a lot of complexity and about 25 other conversations that go into embryo adoption. So embryo adoption itself is when a couple pursues in vitro fertilization. Sometimes there are embryos remaining from those treatments that they are unable to use for a variety of reasons, whether the mother is unable to have more children for a variety of reasons, cancer, sometimes that happens, or maybe the couple decides that they don't want any more children or they have already had a few children through the IVF treatments and maybe are too old to continue having children. There are a variety of reasons that there are embryos remaining from those treatments, the IVF treatments. And when I was looking into this piece, I realized the data is mixed on this. I had trouble nailing down really solidified numbers, but there are numbers that cite up to 1.5 million frozen embryos that are remaining from these IVF treatments. And many of them are not planning to be used in the future. So by their uh, genetic parents, at least. So I followed the story of Hannah Strage, who is the first known adopted embryo back in the 90s through the, a formal adoption process. So she's an advocate for embryo adoption and someone who felt like her experience was a good thing. And definitely she advocates for that as a solution to the frozen embryos. So that's a little bit of the piece that's coming out in the December print issue, but definitely realizing that this is a topic that the church should be talking about. Kim, you've done quite a bit of work on the nuances of adoption. Do you feel like embryo adoption has any nuance that parents or families should be aware of, at least from the perspective of being an adoptee yourself? I think there are commons here that we look at the needs related to grief and mourning, perhaps trauma, intergenerational trauma. We're looking at meaning-making Uh, especially around identity. Who am I from? Where am I from? We're looking at messages related to this sort of assumption of the bio-normativity of a family. Oh, who's your real parents? Or do you ever want to go find these people? So part of our question, especially as the local church, is how to rally around these folks, these siblings, brothers and sisters, and say, how can I serve you? How can I help carry some of these questions with you and not see this as non-faith or some kind of disobedience that you're holding some of these curiosities? Uh, We want to be able to expand our capacity to really wrestle with this together. Kara, I'm wondering in your work, have you come across people who have both ethical problems with in vitro fertilization itself, as I do, but also who are pro-embryo adoption. Did that tension show up at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think there seem to be a variety of opinions on this. For example, I talked to several ethicists, some of whom said they had concerns with IVF, some of whom were for IVF. And one of the ethicists that I talked to said that he felt there was maybe a direction within IVF where there isn't an avenue for a woman to have her eggs retrieved and only fertilize those that are going to be used within the process and not to freeze any. Germany now is a country that bans freezing embryos. So just to clarify, just a quick biology, I've gotten this question a lot from people. So frozen embryos are fertilized eggs. So it's not just freezing your eggs, but that was a question that has come up a lot. And Hannah says that she gets that question a lot as well. 
And so um, a lot of ethicists say that maybe there is a direction with IVF. It's a lot more expensive. It's a lot harder on the woman's body, but maybe there is a way forward where we can use IVF, but not freeze any embryos and only be implanting the ones that could be used. So that was one direction I saw. And then a lot of kind of the two pronged dilemma in this piece that I felt was that, first of all, we have up to over a million frozen embryos. So what do we do with these embryos, these frozen souls, you know, that exist? And then B, how do we also prevent more from being created and frozen. So this two-pronged ethical approach. And so a lot of people, even regardless of their view on IVF, whether they were for or against it, felt that embryo adoption and giving these embryos a chance at life was the only possible positive outcome if they were not going to be born by their genetic parents. So that was the main conclusion across the board among some ethicists that I talked to. With people themselves, with the parents themselves, did you come across more people who are saying, look, we have all of these, our neighbors who are frozen and we can help to adopt them and give them parents? Or was it more an experience of pregnancy itself as opposed to more traditional adoption arrangements? That's a great question. And Kimberly Tyson, one of the spokespeople for Nightlight Christian Adoptions, was saying just in her experience with a lot of adoptive moms, it's probably 20% or less of the families are saying wanting to do out of a goodness of pursuing offering life to these embryos and bringing a person into their family, a child. But in the majority of cases, it was an avenue of adoption where the mother could experience pregnancy, which gets into domestic adoption and babies within and infants mm-hmm. within domestic adoption from both how many babies are available for adoption and then also just how many parents want to experience raising a baby from infancy. So that was definitely something that I came across. I think it is twofold for many evangelicals. And the one thing I will point out is that a lot of the majority of people who are adopting embryos are evangelicals. So that was something I felt was also important to explore in this piece, both because of their view on embryos being people, as well as wanting to adopt. I have a hundred scenarios running through my mind of friends who have had IVF, who have adopted embryos, who have frozen their eggs. And I also have all of these scenarios, Cam, that are almost similar to what you wrote about a few years ago with people who adopted either an embryo or had IVF or had surrogacy or some other means of having a child, got into the situation and realized, oh, I'm not quite prepared. And it feels a little bit like there's a a kind of a Starbucks customization happening here. I'd like a tall vanilla latte. I'd like a child with this color hair, these color eyes. And then in the adoption process, they recognize, actually, this was about me. This was not about me wanting to provide for a child or giving a home. Where do we draw the line between I want this and the child needs this? I think us together here having dialogue about this is a great example of some of the awareness and the consciousness raising. Because the fear of, we don't really talk about this, or this is very personal. It's none of other people's business. It's my decision. I want to respect people having their principles and their values. At the same time, we're learning together and we're engaging in confession. Are there motives in my heart? Are there ways within me that I don't quite yet know about And through sharpening conversations with one another and honesty, that can be revealed to me in some way. And I can take steps to work through that. 
So the customization piece, sometimes what I think about is the question, who's it for? I want to be a parent. I can't. That's a problem. So I'm going to participate in embryo adoption. And that solves my problem, essentially. So in that particular narrative, the main character, I guess, in some ways, is the adopter. And then the child itself, the reason we're talking about customization is like the object that kind of fulfills my desire. It's like the tool or the resource that helps me live out my journey or my calling. Now, obviously, yeah, we're not saying that that's what these folks are believing or feeling, but we're asking about the narrative. So the next piece is from the perspective of the, as Kara shared, the frozen soul, or if we're saying that there is this entity that needs a chance at life. If that is the main character, then in that particular narrative, the problem is, and I'm using very limited terminology here, but I'm frozen and I need to be adopted or given a chance at life, okay? Now the parent coming in, not as the hero or the main character, but the one with resources to say, how can I help serve you? Not just to fulfill my needs or my idea or vision for what I've always wanted, I've always wanted to adopt, but to actually serve this child throughout the duration of their journey and all of its complexities long after the finalization papers have been finished, long after any transfer of custody, the biopsychosocial process of delivery and being adopted into a home, long after that, identity, grief, loss, being able to talk about our origin story, answering questions, fielding some of those questions, community. I think there's something that you mentioned, Nicole, in, in an interview with Jason Day about scripture plus community. That's some healing. Great. So how, what does that look like for the embryo adoption community, similar to the way that we address transracial adoptees, international adoptees? Russell, I'm curious actually about your question. You're raising there may be some ethical considerations that we should have here. And I do wonder, will embryo adoption become more popular going forward? And will that cause some type of a crisis in terms of our adoption system, our foster system, because it's more attractive, it's sexier to have an embryo, one that you haven't seen, you don't know what that looks like, you get to carry this child. Are there ethical considerations that we need to be thinking about when it comes to embryo adoption versus adoption of a child that's already born versus fostering children? And then all of what Cam was talking about, the identity conversations and the traumas and the things we're going to have to work through. What do we need to be considering? I don't really think that embryo adoption is going to grow to the point that it will compromise the foster care system and other things that are going on just because it's so difficult. I do think there are ethical questions about even, and I'm not criticizing Kara here because she's using the standard language as she should, but the language of the embryos that have been used the embryos that are not being used. I think even the metaphor that's so common in this process is a problem. It's turning children from gift into something that's instrumental. And I think that is something we have to work through when it comes to this. Now, I think there are a lot of people who are adopting in this way that are not in any way incentivizing in vitro fertilization, much less what you were talking about earlier with genetic modification and those sorts of, of questions that will more pronounced in the future. I don't think they're incentivizing that. They're seeing 
those who are in need of parents and who no one's paying attention to. No one even thinks about. Often, even the people who are fertilizing these embryos start taking an unintentional sort of Planned Parenthood view of these are potential people and potential Mm -hmm. children rather than this is a person who's small and vulnerable and needs help. I agree about the language. I think that was something really challenging in the piece. I think that's a really important piece to point out because you get into this, you start talking about leftover embryos. What does that mean? You're not, they're not leftover people. As we think about the child being born or the child being adopted, what communication needs to be given? You can imagine, obviously, when you're adopting or fostering a child, that at some point there needs to be a conversation about narrative, about longing, about purpose, about family, and about what love looks like, whether you were born from other parents or whether you were adopted. Does that same conversation need to happen? And how do you communicate to a child that was adopted as an embryo versus a child who was adopted at five years old versus a child who was fostered and then adopted? Is there a different communication or is it all love? The idea that adoption is love or love is enough certainly is something that we can unpack and actually go way in depth into those waters in the upcoming book, The Adoptee's Journey. That question of what kind of information do I need and at what age would I want that or need that? In addition to who can help me, who's guiding me or scaffolding and providing some kind of example for how I can speak about this or even permission to speak about it. So I think the idea of providing that in my mind is going to be similar. It's going to use that principle that information empowers adoptees. And information meaning either it's education about the process and where did I come from? What is my origin story? There might be a loss of continuity or a loss of information about ancestry, lineage. There might be some kind of experience that I'm looking for throughout my journey of connecting with or developing a relationship with people who share my biology. There might be a motivation to become active in raising awareness, in consciousness raising, in developing specific, unique post-adoption services, even pre-adoption services. And just like thinking about what Hannah's purpose is and her vision, making these conversations more accessible and less stigmatized. So I see that as a thread running through. I'm sitting with adoptees daily as a mental health professional, working through those layers of ambiguity and these sort of fragmented pieces of our lives. But to say that it is important and it's not taken lightly and insignificant as if it it, it doesn't matter, perhaps God can actually work in you through some of these details and maybe equip you even to walk alongside neighbors and siblings. Wow, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you, Cam. And we'll be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. 
Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm anticipating a wonderful discussion (laughs) with Greg Howe, who joins us today. Greg serves as the Senior Assistant to the President, Diversity and External Relations for InterVarsity. He is the author of Your Mind's Mission and the Kingdom of God Life Guide Bible Study, as well as other contributions. Greg, so great to have you with us today. It's great being here. Thanks for having me on. So we're talking about two areas that I know you are very passionate about. We're talking about students, and we're talking about international students, and this wave of international students that are enrolling and being accepted into American universities. Recently, we just saw a statistic that said as much as 32% of international students across the U.S. who are enrolling in schools are from India. So tell us what's happening Yeah, there are over a million college students or university students who are international students in the United States. The international student population is larger than the population of the states of Delaware or Wyoming or Vermont. And one of the new things that's happening with international student enrollment is that you're seeing the surge of students coming in from India. Historically, China has been dominant and China is still the largest population, but India is about now neck and neck. So there are about a quarter of a million international students from India, as well as China, they make up about 52% of all international students in the United States. And I think as Indian nationals come here, it changes the ways we think about ministry and it changes the opportunities that we have. Greg? So much is set in terms of discipleship and, and outlook when one is in college. How much will this dynamic change churches going into the future? Sadly, it doesn't change churches much unless churches engage with international students. But I remember talking to a denominations missions executive, and he said, I think international student outreach is maybe the gateway for my church to think about global missions. Because suddenly, it's not just people who are out there who I do not know, but it's the people that I've met whose families still do not know Jesus. And the countries of the people that I've met that I now read about in the news, and suddenly the globe becomes real to them, and it becomes vibrant to them. The other way that I think international students could help the American church is this. The place where we still see the American church growing tends to be among communities that are immigrant communities and recent arrivals. Mm -hmm. And while most international students return back to their home countries, The folk who do stay here, often filling jobs that we need in areas ranging from industry to high tech to research, often become the nucleus of new church plants. So many of the Chinese churches in the United States, and I'm a product of the Chinese church in the United States, started from these immigrant communities. And you can look across the United States and see growing vibrant churches reaching out to their communities and reaching out to new immigrants that started from international students that met together for a Bible study or hosted by a church. And then they make a contribution 
to how the U.S. church grows now. International students are both an opportunity to engage globally in mission, but also to bring life and vibrancy to the U.S. church. We just did a session a few weeks ago on rising anti-Semitism happening on college campuses. And now we've got this huge number of international students, the largest that it's been in several decades. Are you sensing that there's a fear? Is there an openness? Is there receptivity? And then how do we create space where there is no threat and there is no fear from international students that are coming onto campus? Yeah, Part of the reality of international student numbers is that it does vary based on the political environment in the United States. When the United States moves into an era that's more protectionistic or more nationalistic, international students choose to go elsewhere because they aren't sure they'll be safe here. They aren't sure they're going to be welcome here. And I think in terms of ministry, it's harder to convince American churches to engage in caring for people who don't look like themselves, who don't speak the language that they do, and who they regard as potentially a threat. So I I do think when the United States is more wary of strangers and aliens in our midst, to use biblical language, we inadvertently shut the door to some international student work. And universities are afraid of that because international students are an incredible revenue source, but it's an incredible loss of a ministry opportunity uh, for the church. Students from India are coming from the largest Hindu, one of the largest Muslim countries in the world. China represents one of the largest Buddhist and secularized states in the world. When students come here, they have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And most studies show that 80% of international students, 80% of them never step foot in an American home during the year they're here in the United States. Greg, with Indian students particularly, one thinks about the Hindu-Muslim conflicts in India. Does that come with students, or are the students who are going overseas to travel, by definition, able to work through those tensions already? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, like most college students, while you may be caught up in a particular experience of tension in your home country, when you move to another country— the experience of dislocation opens you up to entirely different conversations. Mm -hmm. It already happens while you're in college, but I think for international students, it's not only I'm going to college or uh, graduate school, but I'm in a new culture, working a new language. So I don't think they bring much of that tension with them. I think actually what they do is they look at the United States and it opens them up to a different type of conversation Mm. once they're here. I was also reflecting on an article from Forbes that said one million international students contributed 40 billion to the U.S. economy. feels like there's this tension. Like we want international students to contribute to our economy and to, to help us in those ways. But we also are not willing to invite you into our homes or to get to know you or to build relationships with you or, dare I say, to learn from you. So how do we create an ethos where churches, especially through groups like InterVarsity, can show up for international students in a way that says we appreciate you, not just for what you're going to give to our economy, but for who you can be in the kingdom of God? I think in part, um, it's grounded in just the fundamental orientation of a church to decide it's not there as a consumer gathering about what they can receive on a Sunday, but that churches exist to declare the good news of Jesus Christ in word and deed in the communities that they're in. And so I think churches that have that missional outlook are poised well to welcome international students. On most campuses in the United States, at least most of the larger campuses, there probably is an international student outreach. Whether it's InterVarsity, our colleagues at International Students Incorporated, or Bridges with Crew, most of us are trying to reach out to international students, and we would welcome churches to come alongside us 
and say, how could we partner together to do this? One of the things that I think is most important as churches are thinking about reaching out to international students is how do we come alongside and then empower Christian international students to take the lead in how best to serve their communities? And while it's easy for us, I think, to fall in the mindset of, oh, international students, they're desperately in need of American friendship, hospitality, and service to orient to a new country, and all of that is true, what they equally need are the Christian community within among international students to be lifted up and have people come along and do ministry alongside them. And so for InterVarsity, one of the most important things that we do is empower international students to lead. And the reason we do this is, one, it helps the American church come alongside the needs rather than dictate how we will serve you. And so we avoid the inadvertent paternalism or colonialism that can come with that. But also it prepares international students to go back to their home country as people who've already had Christian leadership experience who know how to lead ministry, to lead the Bible studies, to organize. And then when they go back to China or India or Saudi Arabia, they bring those skills with them. But I think beyond that, for specific things Americans can do, it's taking some of the traditions that we think of as this is family time and expanding our definition of family. And so Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, July 4th, we think, oh, this is a time to gather my family. And if we could just say there's potential family for us. There are people who could become like family to us socially and ultimately perhaps spiritually if we would just say, come, have a meal with us. Come, tell us about your experience. One of the programs InterVarsity has started is a program called Peace Feasts. But what we've tried to do is create an environment where, in that case, Muslim and Christian students or church members can invite Muslim students to co-create an event together. And at the event, there should be a meal that everybody can enjoy. And we overtly said, we would love to talk about religion. We prepare a passage of scripture. They prepare a passage from the Quran, both about prayer. And they say, let's talk about how our experience of prayer is similar or different. And what we found is Muslim international students are so eager to have these conversations, which they do not have in any other context. And we acknowledge it's an initial conversation. There will not be a call to faith at the end. But when Christians and Muslims talk about how they approach prayer and how they experience prayer in the context of a meal that's open and well-facilitated, then suddenly you have amazing conversations that we hope continue over another meal or another, another cup of coffee. So it's mostly how do we invite people into places where we can be ourselves, authentically ourselves, and invite them to be authentically themselves as well and create the conversations that are really, I think, uh, generative and gospel honoring. You train people in college and in the university to become the kind of citizens and become the kind of people who have the capacity to say, we have deep differences and I've learned to engage with you respectfully without compromising my commitment to my own convictions and inviting you to consider them. And when you think of international students, in part, what motivates so many of us in international student ministry are the kinds of people who are international students. So at one point, there were more U.S. PhDs on the Iranian presidential cabinet than there were in the United States cabinet. The children of the last three major leaders of China, including current President Xi Jinping, their children all studied in the United States. When you have that kind of opportunity to influence not just 
you know, average college students, but potentially the leaders of the countries that they return to. It's an incredible opportunity to humanize things. And we've talked to so many people, American church members who've said, those college students who we hosted multiple Thanksgiving, Christmases, and Easter's with are not just strangers. They're family. When we travel overseas, we visit them. Imagine if some of those folk overseas said, I have family over there. These are not just strangers. They're family to me. And ultimately, of course, we all hope they become spiritual family to us. InterVarsity does quite a bit of work with graduate students. Are there different opportunities or more opportunities with graduate students as opposed to undergraduate students? Yeah, that's a great question. There are more opportunities. About two-thirds of all international students are actually graduate students. And so they've come with their college education, but they're now pursuing a master's or a PhD here. And I think the unique opportunities there are often, some of them have family in the United States. And so the opportunity to care for spouses of international students who are often at home, can't work, maybe doing childcare, maybe doing nothing, is an incredible opportunity for many churches to come alongside them. I saw this all the time on campuses where I was at. I always wondered who would reach out to the Muslim women whose husbands were in PhD programs, but who had limited social opportunities. And if a group of women would just gently and graciously come alongside them, what an opportunity for a relationship. I think also they're coming with clearer, more developed worldview. They're further along in their studies, but they're often here for longer periods of time. And so it's not just a few years, but they could be here for four or five or six years during their PhD program. And so the opportunity for sustained relationship, and they're here all year, year round relationship is so much greater. And their, I think, freedom to engage with us as adults uh, or older Christians is also larger, right? The power differential is lower. So I think actually there's more opportunity to engage with graduate students. These are fewer resources to support them. They're here longer. And often outside of their lab, they have very few other social connections to engage with. And so friendship is real. Greg, I was talking to an Indian Christian several years ago and asked, what's the biggest challenge you're dealing with right now? And he said, a suicide. And Mm. he said, especially for students who are in universities because of the expectations of their parents that they succeed. And that's even more so if they're in an elite university. And that's even more so if they're in an American university. Have you seen that sort of pattern emerging anywhere? Yes, I don't have good numbers for that. But it's certainly true that the pressure you have as an international student, particularly at the elite universities, is intense. It's expensive to send your children Mm -hmm. to American universities. There's no financial aid for international students in most cases. And so families are sacrificing significantly to get their children there. And when you feel like my parents and maybe my extended family has sacrificed for me to be here and their expectations that I will succeed so that I can provide for my family and my extended family are enormous. And the stigma against um, seeking mental health care is enormous as well in um, India and China. And I think the opportunity to provide friendship, the opportunity to provide support, the opportunity to hear from an older, respected leader you are valued. You are more than your achievement here. We love you and we delight in you. That cannot be underestimated. And I think part of what the church will also need to do if it wants to come alongside is actually gain fluency in the thought life and cultural understanding of Hindu background individuals as well as Chinese background individuals. And obviously, a lot of ministries have resources that people can find on that. But it's worth learning that. And I think one of the opportunities as 
Indian immigration increases among international students is, could this be an opportunity for the American church to take seriously? What does it mean to understand a Hindu background or a Muslim background individual better so that I can come alongside them more authentically and more helpfully? It sounds like there is a wonderful opportunity to think about the holidays, about Christmas, about what this looks like. I remember when I was both in undergrad and grad school, there were always international students who couldn't afford to go back to their home country. And so this could be a wonderful time to think about what that looks like. The challenge that I often heard and I remember experiencing is a lot of evangelicals were not willing to host Muslim students, Hindu students unless there was an evangelistic opportunity. So how do you navigate, come over for dinner and not come over and be saved? And do we need to navigate that? I don't know. There's so many things attached to that, right? Evangelicals' unwillingness to develop relationships with people who are different than themselves, unless there's a return on investment. And I want to say, I fully affirm the evangelistic desire, right? More evangelism, please. What I would say to families that are thinking about, how do I invite somebody over if there's no clear evangelistic outcome, especially at a season like Christmas or Easter, as you look a little further into the future, is if you think about an international student the same way that you would think about a neighbor, you might not get the gospel out the first time you meet your neighbors. But it's over the context of multiple meals together, of your children playing together, where your values become clear, where natural opportunities to say, hey, that seems a hard thing that's happening in life. Would you be okay if I prayed with for that? Or can I pray with you right now? Right. And the beautiful thing, of course, around holidays like Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, is the students have seen the commercialized version that's transmitted through Hollywood and through the media to witness a Christian family celebrating these traditions opens up a wealth of conversation opportunities that are natural, that are legitimate. And if they aren't interested, then so be it. All we've managed to do is demonstrate love to somebody who has never experienced the love of Christ through our hospitality before. That alone would be worth celebrating. And I wonder if watching a Christian family celebrate Christmas by centering Jesus, as opposed to the presence or the presence of family, watching a Christian family seriously pray opens up that kind of opportunity. And all it takes is, I know in your culture, you don't celebrate Christmas. What's a religious or cultural celebration that also is deeply meaningful to you. Tell me more about that and be able to unpack a little bit about, or what's your understanding of how, what American Christmas is like? And to say, those are all true. And one of the things that's important for my family is to spend some time in prayer and worship. You'd be welcome to join us. But also, if you feel uncomfortable, please feel free to not be there. But we may sing, we may pray. And I think what you then pray for is the Holy Spirit to be at work growing a sense of curiosity. And I think for most people who come to faith, what they're looking for is, can I trust these people, right? Can you cross that first threshold? Can I trust them? I'm now intrigued by something that they're doing and because I trust them, I'm willing to ask them about that. And trust is built over many meals. It's built over many contacts. And my hope is it's not a check, we invited one international student, we hope we don't see them again. But it's the opportunity to say, come over, have a meal once a month with my family. We would love that. Over Christmas, do you want to stay at our house? We know it must be lonely at the dorm or the apartment. Small gifts like that, I think, open the door for the profound conversations that we long to have. Thank you so much, Greg, for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right, we'll be right back. 
Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are here with Pastor Aaron Bierke, who is the pastor of the Well Church in New York. He served under Pastor Tim Keller and has served in other capacities through Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Aaron is here to talk to us about the growing phenomenon of psychedelic churches and the quest for spiritual being. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I remember hearing you at Movement Day in New York, and it really piqued my interest that you were talking about New York City as a hotbed for spiritual centers, for people who were seeking to uh, find well-being, and that kind of became the foundation for why your church came to be. Give us a little background on your church. We're a church plant that launched November 2020, which on paper you couldn't think of a worse time to do something like that during covid so I like to remind people that it's just, it's a good thing you don't know the future because you, you won't have the courage to do the thing that you're supposed to do. And so we, we started right during the pandemic in 2020. And it really was an overflow from just the culture changing over the last 10, 15 years that at least I had been experiencing here in the city. And so I would say about five years before the well started, I started getting congregants at Redeemer asking me questions about, is it okay if I meditate? Is it okay if I do yoga? Is it okay if I go to that Buddhist studio over there? I was used to interacting with non-religious people who are atheists, and they're asking a very different question than the non-religious friends who are spiritual and hungry and spiritual and searching. It dawned on me that in many ways, reaching out to the spiritual but not religious is an easier ramp to some extent than the atheist skeptics because the atheist skeptics, you have to in a sense prove or convince that there is a spiritual realm, that the universe isn't just the physical material world. And then you gotta convince them that it's Jesus. But with our spiritual friends, they don't need any convincing that there's more than meets the eye. And so now it's a spiritual, gentle spiritual conversation about Jesus and about their spiritual life it slowly dawned on me that I could just invite some of these congregants who are asking questions about Buddhism and meditation into some version of my own spiritual walk and my spiritual practice as a Christian. And at that time, I realized through these conversations, wow, there are a lot of these spiritual studios. So I just did a, a year-long tour here in New York, visiting different spiritual communities to learn their music, to learn their vocabulary, to learn what they're doing. That gave me the missional context 
to then begin to create the well. I, I would literally listen to different music in the in these studios or these communities. I go up to the front desk person and say, "Hey, what is the playlist for this?" And then they would send me the Spotify playlist, and I would have all these songs that I would listen to. I began to make a, an Excel spreadsheet of different parts within these different songs that I thought maybe we could turn into worship. And the genre that was in and still is in all these spiritual studios uh, is lo-fi beats. That is what we created. So I think I think in many ways, not to be original for original sake, but to create a kind of music that was coherent within the spiritual space. The wellness space is pretty chill. And so it's, it's music that's not in your face. It doesn't tell you who to be or how to feel. It really invites you in right where you're at. In our highly anxious society, people don't feel like they can get to chill without taking something. How does the well combat this sense of drug-induced worship that forces people into an experience when Christ obviously is inviting us into an experience without the use of drugs? So I know a handful of people who are in these psychedelic communities. I would say the majority of people, though, in the spiritual and wellness space are more in, I would say, in line with the various spiritual studios, so more with like spiritual practices. There's a growing number of spiritual searchers who are actually anti-drugs, and they self-righteously look down on those who are using psychedelics. So even within that space, there's not agreement. Carl Jung warns against this idea that what is it to get profound insights about life or about yourself through different experiences that in a sense are the knowledge is given to you in a split second rather than in a, a way or a form that happens over time. And our, to put it in a, in a question, are psychedelics unearned wisdom for the relief from pain and stress and fear and anxiety? The way I understand it, psychedelics give us a, a temporary access to different insights or realities about ourselves that I might say are way above our pay grade that people can use to deepen their own personal development. And I find it's a, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very interesting space to sit in because you read these different stories of veterans, PTSD, or people who have been in dramatic, life-threatening accidents or violence. And they have these PTSD episodes daily, weekly, monthly, and therapy doesn't seem to work. Antidepressants don't seem to work. But then you hear, it seems like it's story after story over the last couple of years, especially of veterans, where they say they'll go on some sort of, of medication, some psychedelic experience, and they pop out of it and they'll say some version of, I haven't had a PTSD episode in two years. And it's in our postmodern culture that elevates the experience. It's, it's hard to argue against that. So I'm always very careful about trying to not put down their experience, but then help bring that out a, a bit more. From a Christian perspective, there, there are a lot of thinkers that have come before me that have understood that through meditation, the brain does have an ability to restructure or rewire itself from a lens of neuroscience. And the, the idea is that you, you form neural pathways from the, just the, the psychological basis of your habits, your thinkings, your feelings, your actings. And so, what are, so if you feel something sad or something stressful, your mind goes to a certain spot that's a pre-existing neural pathway that's formed through repeatedly going that same direction hundreds and thousands of times, maybe for years. 
does psychedelics seek to change that and re rewire it instantly? I think so. But what we do know is that when you get the experience of being fully known and the experience of fully seen, neuroscience calls that secure connection, we can actually re-pathway our neurobiology to a healthier direction. So for example, this is where meditation can come in. Let's just say you're in a hard season, maybe you lost your job or maybe you're going through a difficult experience. Maybe it's the anniversary of a, of a parent's death and you, you find yourself constantly going to this certain point. Meditation invites you as a practice to drop the thought, to come back to the present moments, to re-engage in maybe a, a specific spiritual imaginative exercise. And in doing so, you are saying, I, I don't need to go to that spot in my thinking when I'm stressed, sad, angry, or hurt, I can stay present with God because from a Christian perspective, God doesn't promise to be with us yesterday or tomorrow, but only in the present. Matthew 6, be present today. Let tomorrow's worries worry about itself. So when we're present, we can always be assured that we are with God. And from a Christian spiritual perspective, that gives us a framework to do some deeper heart and mind work. Yeah. Now, connecting it all together, that takes time and that doesn't happen in a moment like a psychedelic trip can give you but i think what i would encourage my friends who are in these communities i want to put your experience down but i want you to consider that psychedelics is not the be all end all and i think christian spirituality has a resource for you through meditation called jesus that that can help sit with your pain where you can your pain can be it doesn't have to be ignored, and through that you can be fully seen by a love that, that's created the universe. And our prayer leader actually at the well went through a season where she had to meditate three times a day, about 20 minutes a day, for a long length of time as she worked through her anxieties and fear and pain. Drug-free, getting her closer to her, deepening her relationship with Jesus. For sure, neuropathways were being formed and rewired. But the, I would call that earned wisdom, not maybe the unearned wisdom through psychedelics. But I, it's, I think it's a very gentle dance that you have to walk with your spiritual but not religious friends who are in some sort of real pain and yet experience some sort of, of relief. I uh, couldn't help but think about uh, Aaron's former pastor, Tim Keller, and I were talking to a, an atheist friend of ours who's a, a very strong atheist who said that he had been using psychedelics. And he said the reason for it is it's like being in a house all your life, having the roof taken off, you're taken all around the universe and then put back in with the roof back on. And he said, what I noticed is for a period of time after each of these experiences, I would be kinder to people. It was like I was born again. And as soon as he said this, I saw Tim's eyebrow just go up and he finally said, yeah, but is it real? And uh, we had that sort of conversation. I'm wondering, Aaron, when you think about a lot of the drive towards psychedelics really is a search for transcendence. Absolutely. Uh, to get out of the everydayness <clears throat> of life. How would you connect with someone who's seeking for that, but maybe seeking it in the wrong place? I love the question, is it real? I'm actually in a, a, a longer dialogue about the questions that the different cultures are asking. Francis Schaeffer said the church's job is to answer the question the culture is asking, not to answer a question the culture is not asking. And so I think if the modernism 20th century was asking, is it true? Because it was in pursuit of absolute truth. 
postmodernism is personal truth. They're asking the question, does it work? I want to try to answer that question through the lens of Jesus, that Jesus works because Jesus is real, because Jesus is true. I think those questions can go like that together. Real implies staying power. The more real something is, the more durable it is. And as I talk to, I'm, I'm thinking one, one uh, friend in particular who uh, has done ayahuasca probably close to a hundred times. Is the experience real? Just like that conversation you were relaying, absolutely, I can't deny it. Can't deny it, that's what they've went through, that's what they've experienced. But is it real? Is it a deeper level real? And I would say, if you feel like you need to do it that many times, maybe it's not as real as what you need it to be. And so the very object of your source of life, if that's maybe, we could say that, with the psychedelic experience, to the degree that it is durable, to the deg that degree it's real. And I think that's what we all want. We want something that will never leave us or forsake us. And now we're starting to sound very Christian when we say that. I don't want to deny your experience was very real. But what about this Jesus guy over here? And we, now we can start to talk slightly more traditional apologetics with the resurrection. That's supposed to be real. Turning death upside down. I think that's maybe the essence of that, of resurrection, is what you friends uh, in your psychedelic pursuit are looking for. To be healed with a love that will transform you. Because it transcends, in a sense, the space and time and our pain. And yet, isn't that the craziness of the resurrection and of the God written about in the Bible is that this God transcends everything and yet goes right into the very, our very humanity. Oh, it goes further, Philippians 2 says. It goes even to the grave. Oh my gosh, it goes as far as real can get. And no one can argue how real death is and yet flips it upside down. And so I like to see my friends become curious about that. So I want to I wanna honor and acknowledge the experience of, of uh, their, their psychedelic experience. But I want to tell them that's just a clue. It's a clue that you want something more real. And thank you so much for the work of your ministry. We really appreciate your perspective. Russell, always a joy to have conversation with you. We thank you, you guys too. for listening. Thanks for having me. we'll be back next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening.